From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Monday, July 9th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Court ruling today intensifies the political standoff in Egypt. In Sudan, the government feels the heat from protesters, including this woman. I'm just an angry mother that wants to provide a decent living for my children. So that's what makes me go out for these protests. And later, a virus detective who proved his mentors wrong. I asked for some career counseling for my professors, and the verdict was unanimous. There was no future in infectious diseases. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss the series premiere of Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Egypt is in the midst of a political showdown between its new Islamist president and the military. President Mohamed Morsi has ordered the dissolved Egyptian parliament to reconvene. The elected body was disbanded a month ago by the country's ruling military council. Today, Egypt's Supreme Court sided with the generals. They rejected Morsi's order. The court said that a previous ruling declaring the election of parliament unconstitutional was final. Reporter Noel King in Cairo says that the court also acted to preserve its own authority. What the Supreme Court is trying to say is we are still in charge. What we say goes, and that means Egypt's parliament is not a constitutionally elected body. What this means on the whole is that we're being set up for a confrontation between the President Mohamed Morsi and the judiciary of Egypt. Okay, so what does it mean for today then? Uh, Is is, uh, Egypt's parliament able to convene or not? The Speaker of Egypt's Parliament has said that the body will meet at 12 noon tomorrow, and we expect that they will indeed go into the court. Uh, We did see something very significant this afternoon. Ever since the Parliament was dissolved a month ago, there have been army units positioned outside of the Parliament building. Uh, They are there to keep anyone, including the the now out-of-work parliamentarians, from entering the building. Now, today, those army units were pulled back. And what this suggests to us is that we're now seeing perhaps a diminishing prospect of a, a very embarrassing and public conflict. So it appears now that the military council scaf still has a significant amount of power in Egypt. What what is within its realm of jurisdiction? What SCAF is in charge of is basically everything. In the absence of a parliament, SCAF is the legislative authority in Egypt. Uh, SCAF is in charge or has oversight over the national budget. SCAF have control over their own affairs. What Mohamed Morsi appears to attempt to be doing here is exercising a bit of his own authority, flexing some political muscle and saying, All of these questions about whether or not I'm just a figurehead, whether or not the real authority is still in the hands of the the ruling military council, those questions are illegitimate. I am the democratically elected president of this country, and I plan on moving forward in that vein. Does that amount to more than words? 
Mohamed Morsi and the ruling military council are cutting deals behind closed doors. So again and again, we feel as if we've been set up for a very public confrontation. We feel as if that confrontation is being litigated or played out in the national press and in the international press. And then at the end, things have a tendency to calm down. One of the other very striking things that we did see today, it's worth noting, Mohamed Morsi went to a graduation ceremony for military cadets. The man he was seated next to is Field Marshal Mohamed Hussein Tantawi, the man who he is supposed to be at political odds with. So for General Tantawi, though, what would be his motivation and uh, the military council, SCAF's motivation to dissolve parliament in the first place? The ruling military council's interests in Egypt have always been economic. One of the things that really displeased the ruling military council about this elected parliament was that the parliament was comprised mainly of Islamists, of members of the Muslim Brotherhood Party and the even more conservative Salafi parties. Those two groups had vowed that they were going to go after economic corruption. Now, the army is well known to be at the center of a lot of that economic corruption. So the military's interest in general seems to be protecting its economic interests, making sure that nobody has the authority to challenge them on that level. How well does the average Egyptian function under this kind of dissent among the authority figures in Egypt? I think that's really the critical question here. As I said, this continues to be litigated in public, in the press, and the result is the Egyptian public is enormously confused, and they are extremely worried. It's worth noting that this dissolved parliament wasn't very popular in the first place because they hadn't gotten anything done. And I think what Egyptians want on the whole is for this country to turn itself around economically. That can't happen if we're going to continue on with this kind of political chaos. All right, speaking to us from Cairo, Egypt, reporter Noel King, thank you. Thank you. The political chaos in Egypt contrasts with the relative clarity emerging after elections in neighboring Libya. Voters there went to the polls this weekend to elect a national assembly. This was the first free national election in Libya in six decades. Initial results suggest the moderate alliance of national forces is leading. That's an umbrella organization of 50 small political parties. Correspondent Marine Olivesi is in Tripoli, where she's following the results. In the very first uh, preliminary results we've had so far, the moderate parties are ahead, especially in the, the main towns uh, along Libya's coast. Okay, so if those uh, preliminary results hold true for the rest of Libya, where there is apparently about a 65% turnout of uh, the population, it looks as if Libya might be bucking the regional trend of voting in Islamist candidates. Uh, That's what happened in Egypt and Tunisia and other places. Is it too early to say that the Islamist party affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood is not going to gain control? Yeah, we can probably predict that they won't get the largest share of of the vote. But what has been clear throughout the campaign is that it's been a pretty consensual campaign. Some would even say dull. And all agree on the broad lines of democratic principles and human rights that should be enshrined in the next constitution. So unlike in Tunisia or Egypt, where in Tunisia you had a clear divide between the seculars and the Islamists, in the Libyan campaign you had no, no such divide. And yesterday the leader of the Alliance of National Forces, Mahmoud Jibril, called for a broad coalition to form Libya's next government. And even the, the Muslim Brotherhood parties recognize the advance of um, in the polls of the, the alliance. So the, the, the post-campaign looks pretty much like the, the campaign looked like, which is uh, the parties are competing, but without any clear political fault lines between them. 
Uh, you mentioned Mahmoud Jabril, who is the founder of this coalition. This is a man who spent time here in the United States. He got his doctoral degree at the University of Pittsburgh. He apparently taught there as well. What is the appeal, at least to him or to his coalition? And is it in any way in opposition to what Libyans are hearing from the Islamic parties, from those who are aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood? Well, Mahmoud Jibril is an economist who taught in the U.S., who returned to Libya and was reintegrated to um, Gaddafi's regime in the in the uh, years 2000s when uh, Muammar Gaddafi's son, Saif al-Islam, tried to modernize the regime. But he sided with the revolution in his very early hours in, in, in February 2011, and he was instrumental in um, getting the National Transitional Council recognized on the international level. Maureen, since you have covered so much of what's transpired in the past year. I wonder if you can tell us in terms of the Arab Spring and being right now in Libya where there was so much violence, what it's like to be there and uh, and what Libyans are telling you now. In Tripoli today, it just feels like a capital where uh, everything is uh, open until quite late at night. You have a traffic jam all the time. It's a very vibrant town. And the scenes, actually, that we saw on Saturday night in Tripoli were very similar to those we uh, witnessed right after the fall of Tripoli and an ecstatic crowd and so much joy, actually, back on the streets and hundreds of families waving flags and chanting. And it's interesting to see that Libyans still... At least a lot of people in Tripoli still feel as good about the uh, the new regime and the, the change as they did last summer. Okay, thank you very much for the latest from Tripoli, Libya. Correspondent Marine Olivesi, thank you again. You're very welcome. The sectarian violence that plagued Northern Ireland for three decades ended with a peace treaty that was in 1998. But now, one specific part of the Troubles, as they were called, is the focus of a court battle that has former militants of the Irish Republican Army worried. It has to do with what happened to a group of people known as the Disappeared. In 1972, the IRA took a decision that it was going to try to remove people that they suspected of having passed information to the British Army from nationalist areas in Belfast particularly. Anybody they suspected of having been an informer was kidnapped, interrogated, murdered and secretly buried. That's the BBC's Andy Martin in Belfast. He's been following the court case about the disappeared. The case involves an archive of interviews with former IRA members. The interviews were collected by researchers at Boston College. Prosecutors in Britain want access to the records. And last Friday, a U.S. appeals court in Boston ruled that the researchers do not have free speech protection to keep those interviews private. The researchers, of course, are extremely upset. They are anxious at the idea that the details of these interviews could be handed over to the police in Northern Ireland because they feel that in in so doing, their lives would be at risk because, after all, they were interviewing paramilitaries, people who had been involved in the conflict, and they feel that there would be those within the Republican movement particularly who may be extremely upset at having their rather candid confessions, as we believe them to be, outed in a public arena. So just to be clear on this, the information that's contained in these interviews, is it about to be disseminated to the public? Does it have to be requested one by one? Is there reason for those people who testified or or are named in the testimony to either keep their heads down or just want to get out of town? There is only one person named at the moment, and that is Dolores Price. 
Dolores Price, who was one of the IRA gang that travelled to London in 1973 and blew up the courthouses, the Old Bailey, was one of the people who has said that she gave an interview to Boston College. And allegedly in that interview, she elaborated on her role within The Disappeared. Now, there are seven other interviews which a federal judge in Boston has had the opportunity to view because they apparently relate to the disappeared, which is what the subpoena from the police in Northern Ireland is requesting, information from the interviews that relate to the disappeared. Are there any more appeals, Andy? Yes, there is an appeal in Belfast. There's a judicial review taken by the Republican researcher Anthony McIntyre. He's saying that his life is in danger as a result of the potential release of these documents and therefore he is taking a judicial review at the High Court in Belfast under uh, the European Convention on his right to life. Uh, There is an ongoing appeal from Boston College to suppress the release of seven further interviews that are deemed to relate to the disappeared and indeed the researchers themselves intend to continue and to appeal again in Boston and if not in Boston at a higher court elsewhere. Is it known at this point how many either current or former members of the IRA might be implicated here? It's not known how many may be implicated in the disappeared. I mean, we know that it was a team of perhaps 10 people at the most. But in terms of how many people may have given interviews to Boston College, we think it's somewhere between 17 and 27. It sounds like it has seismic potential in Belfast. Is that is that how you see it? I think it has the potential to be because there may be information in there that may in some way lead to a reopening of old cases. And that could be very, very difficult for some people. Because you have to remember that some of the people involved in the conflict are now politicians. And therefore, if they were to be brought before a court, then that could be difficult for the peace process. I don't think the peace process is stoppable at this stage, but I think there are all sorts of stones that could be put in the spokes of this this carriage that's hurtling towards peace in Ireland. And I think that anything that destabilises it would be viewed by the governments as as, uh, certainly undesirable. But as I say, I don't think anything really will will hold up the peace process in the long run. And uh, I would be surprised, frankly, if this did lead to any prosecution. I think it's, it's potentially more about settling old scores. The BBC's Andy Martin in Belfast. Thank you. You're very welcome. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Something shiny and new is winding its way through the streets of Jerusalem. It's the first commuter light rail in Israel. It was designed to give Jerusalem's public transportation a much-needed upgrade. But the commuter rail charges right through the city's sensitive geopolitics, and it's upsetting locals for all kinds of reasons. Reporter Daniel Estrin took a ride across town. You could call it the streetcar that few desire. But Jerusalem's new light rail does give the city a fresh look. I sat at one of the stops and watched the trains go by with Nadav Meroz, director of the planning team. First of all, it is very beautiful system, very delicate. It has a very modern shape and the color of uh, silver. When it moves just near the old city walls, you can see 
the history of Jerusalem, near the newest system in the world. You can see modern against uh, oldness. Israel decided to build the rail back in the late 1990s. The goal was to provide better public transportation for the people who most rely on it. Jerusalem is one of Israel's poorest cities, and many people here can't afford cars. But in the year 2000, just as the plan was getting off the ground, the Intifada, the second Palestinian uprising, erupted. Suicide bombers started blowing up buses in the city. Only in 2007, after the bombings had mostly stopped, did engineers break ground. Construction did not go smoothly. The cement cracked, the tracks were installed backwards, roads were clogged, Jerusalemites were mad. Finally, 11 years after the plans were first approved and about a billion and a half dollars later, the light rail made its maiden voyage. It's been operating for many months now to mixed results. It's not very pleasant to drive here. I met David Felber on his early morning commute to work. He boards the train near his house in an area Israel annexed after the 1967 Mideast War. I live in Pisgadzev, which is the biggest neighborhood in Jerusalem and maybe in the entire country. But we live in, in near uh, Arab neighborhoods, uh, just like Bet Hanina, which we are passing right now. Israeli buses stopped going through here in the 80s when the first Palestinian uprising broke out and Israeli passengers were pelted with rocks and Molotov cocktails. A new highway was built so Israelis could completely bypass Arab neighborhoods on their way downtown. But now they have no choice. The light rail takes them right through. People dress like Arabs, people feel like Arabs, people behave. So some of them are very friendly and some are not. And the You don't want to find those which are not. Earlier this year, a young Israeli soldier was stabbed by a Palestinian on the train. Police have also arrested Israelis accused of attacking Palestinian riders. The train also sparked an international uproar because it winds through disputed parts of Jerusalem, which the Palestinians want for their future state. A French company backed out of the project because of a Palestinian lawsuit. The UN Human Rights Council spoke out against the light rail, too. The planners insist there's nothing political about the tram. They say they routed it through populous neighborhoods to maximize the number of passengers who'd ride it. I went to a large mosque right across from a train stop in an Arab neighborhood in East Jerusalem. After prayers, I spoke with Jamal Abu Khder, a teacher and father of three. I told him about the Israeli man I'd met on the train the day before and how we got jittery when the train passed through Arab parts of town. Well, I mean, I understand his fear. That's unfortunately the, the fault of uh, some people that have taken the politics into killing people that are innocent on buses. These people that have done that are sick people. We're not, we're not those people. I take the train back to West Jerusalem, near the outdoor vegetable market. Devora Avidan works near the market at a community center. She's a resident historian of sorts, collecting old photos of Jerusalem from the 1800s. She does a lot of thinking about the city. Jerusalem's mentality, it's more suited to horse and buggies, not a light rail. Jerusalem is like French cheese. French cheese has mold, and that's what gives it its quality. The same in Jerusalem. It's a kind of mold here that makes this city special. Modernity isn't exactly built for it. There's something nice about something that's old. Yes, old is nice, but new can be nice too. Take the train. The seats are comfy, 
The facades of the buildings next to the tracks have been cleaned. There are cafe tables lined up along the road where the train passes. Sure, the light rail is still a pain. The ticketing machines rarely work, and passengers complain that transit police hand out unfair fines. And when a train arrives after a long delay, which happens a lot, everyone piles in. And then the passengers start to complain that they're packing us in here like sardines. Some months ago, I got on a crowded train. And a young, ultra-Orthodox Jewish woman pushed her way inside with a large stroller. She picked up her baby from the carriage and handed it over to a complete stranger, some guy in his late 20s who hadn't shaved in a few days. Then the mother tried to collapse the stroller. She couldn't figure out how to do it. Everyone around her pitched in. No, fold it this way. There's got to be a lever here somewhere. And all the while, the stranger was holding the baby and just staring at it with the biggest grin. And I thought, this is Jerusalem. It's brash and opinionated and tense, and it's filled with lots of people who don't like each other. But there's something comforting knowing that everyone's squeezed in this same train car. And when times are tense, a complete stranger could hand you her baby. And for a few precious moments, it seems like everyone's in this together. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. There's an extended version of this report on the podcast of Tablet Magazine. You can find a link and a video of the spanking new light rail at theworld.org. Today's GeoCruise is a wild one. We're looking for a place where you can find rainforests, and in those rainforests there are orangutans, gibbons, and a rare bird called a bespectacled flowerpecker. You've got to be a pretty early riser to really appreciate this setting. It's early morning. The mist is rising in the cooler temperatures at night. The water tends to condense and forms a mist around the treetops. And as the sun comes up, this mist is slowly rising into the sky. It's evaporating. And the forest is wakening up. Now, the place we want you to name is one of the 13 states of Malaysia. It's located at the northern tip of the island of Borneo. The state's name means land below the wind. That's because this region is just beyond the reach of the typhoons that whip around the Philippines. If you've got a map on hand, it'll come in handy. We're looking for Malaysia's easternmost state. The answer's coming up in the second half of the program. You can flip through the world's latest features, interviews, and more on the Flipboard app. Just download the app for your iPad, iPhone, or Android devices at flipboard.com slash the world. The Virus Detective, coming up on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, coming up, a Brazilian musician's special relationship with New Orleans. I used to walk on the street between four and 6 a.m., foggy, early morning, is cold, feeling the presence of some kind of spirits, uh, pirates, ghosts, angels, vampires. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. This day last year, Sudan officially split in two. South Sudan became the world's newest nation, but it has not been a peaceful separation. The two countries have teetered on the brink of war. South Sudan remains among the world's poorest nations. In the north, Sudan has also suffered economically, and so have people living there. Tagreed Abdin is an architect and the mother of three. She lives in the capital Khartoum. She says life has changed dramatically in the past 12 months. Since the secession, the main thing that affected all of us is the skyrocketing inflation because it just happened all of a sudden, and it kept getting worse every single day. So it's like what I used to pay to fill up my gas tank, now I have to pay double that. The school tuition has gone up a lot, and that's an issue for us as working professional parents. Food generally, because everything is being impacted by uh, the fuel rise. So the government in Khartoum says that, look, these problems are basically caused by South Sudan seceding. And because of the secession, Sudan lost about 75 percent of its oil production. There are opposition groups that say something quite different. They say there is rampant corruption, that there are security problems, that these austerity measures are not necessarily called for because of what happened in the secession, the fact that the South did secede. What are you hearing from the government there, and do you believe what you're hearing? What I hear from the government over and over again is that the measures are necessary because of the economic collapse after the secession and the wars that started in the South. But the the secession didn't come as a surprise because it was allowed for in contracts that they negotiated. So why is this a surprise? I mean, you had the oil revenue for so long. Where did it go? Just if you look at the numbers, the oil revenue over the past year, it was considerable money. So where did it all go? And one of the main points that frustrates the people is that the government tells us that they rule in the name of Islam and they hold it over people's heads like if you go against us it's like you're going against religion or the church so to speak and in practice that's not what people see the rampant corruption the lack of accountability and in the name of religion is what frustrates professionals and the common man is there anything that has gotten better since the secession (laughs) No, I can't name a single thing. There are demonstrators who are protesting, and much to the chagrin of the government, the government says that they expected that there would be a certain amount of protests, but they believe that the demonstrators have been incited by foreign agendas and harnessed by foreign aims. Have you thought about going out to join the demonstrations yourself? I have, and in fact, I have joined them. But the thing is, the government is downplaying the demonstrations, they're calling them isolated, they're calling them vagabonds. But the truth of the matter is it's a popular uprising. This is a double income home. We're both working professionals. I manage multi-million dollar projects. But when I bring my salary home, it's not enough to care for my family the way I want it to. So people are joining the demonstrations. They're starting out in the universities and now they've moved into the neighborhoods. And although they downplay it officially, They are taking it seriously because right now I just passed by the University of Khartoum. There were riot police cars with tear gas propellers fixed on top. That was the first time I see it because (laughs) I never knew that they actually use like propellers to throw the tear gas inside the, the mosques. So they can't downplay it if these are the measures they're taking. 
Do you have any concerns about your own safety as you go out and join in some of these protests? You know, we're beyond that. I mean, sometimes my family tells me to be careful for the sake of my children and things like that. You know, I haven't joined it like actively, but I go out when there's a crowd, I take pictures, try to document it, post them on the social networks. And, you know, that's very out of character for me because I'm not exactly an activist or a political person, but it's just, I'm just an angry mother that wants to provide a decent living for my children. So that's what makes me go out for these protests. And the thing is, I'm seeing people go hungry. I'm seeing people starving. I'm seeing people eating out of the garbage. I see beggars on the street. I see starving children, you know, with sunken eyes and hollow bones. And this is Khartoum, the capital. You know, we don't know what's going on in the rest of the country. Excuse me for interrupting, but is that something that you had not seen before? No, not to this degree. Over the course of this government, they have completely ruined the agricultural resources that we had. Right now, it's like we import garlic from China. We import apples from the U.S. and sugar from India. And it's ridiculous because we have the most fertile soil in the world, we think, the fertile soil on the banks of the Nile. And where is agriculture today? Nothing. Right now, the meat prices have doubled and meat is local. So it's like, what is happening? Everything is harder to get. Given all that you have said, Ms. Abdeen, have you thought about, or your husband, have you, either of you thought about leaving the country, especially because you have children so young, between three and, and five years old? You know, sadly, my husband has thought of it. I thought of it, but the problem is I love this country so much, and I wanted to raise my children in a country that they can call home. But when it comes to, you know, just simply numbers adding up, it does make sense for us to leave to provide a quality education for our children and a decent living and even make a decent living ourselves. Sometimes people tell me, you know, your children aren't going to thank you for this, for just leaving them to suffer. But right now, you know, I'm fighting tooth and nail to keep them here. But the thing is, it is getting harder and it's on the table, definitely. Tagreed Abdeen is an architect and mother who lives in Khartoum. You can see photos of the protests in the Sudanese capital. Check them out at theworld.org. This month, the International AIDS Conference will be held in the United States for the first time in 22 years. The return of the conference to American soil comes with a change in attitude about AIDS. It follows the easing of U.S. travel restrictions on HIV-positive people. The conference also comes at a time when top AIDS researchers are optimistic about the future. Peter Piot is a former executive director of the United Nations agency UNAIDS. He has just written a book about his career fighting viruses. Piot is currently the director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And as we are hearing, and I'm sure you are, phrases such as turning point uh, in describing where the world is now with HIV and AIDS because of promising results of studies. Do you see this as a turning point? And if so, what's, what's caused it? Well, Lisa, there's no doubt that we've made enormous progress in the fight against AIDS. Less people are dying because now over 7 million people in developing countries are on antiretroviral therapy, and that thanks in a large extent to American aid through the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, and also uh, less people become infected. But AIDS is not over by any means, and uh, we should be realistic and think that we're in this for the long haul, for several decades, because even if by some miracle 
today nobody would become infected with HIV, we still have well over 30 million people living with HIV somewhere in the world, and all of them for decades will need treatment. So it's not over. Does it also depend on how much treatment they get as to how long they will live and that that treatment varies in different parts of the world? How much of a concern is that? Well, today, someone with HIV who is under treatment has a life expectancy that is very similar to someone who's not uh, infected with HIV. That alone is pretty amazing. Oh, that's a, that's a revolution. I mean, before AIDS was a death sentence. In '96, we had these uh, drugs, antiretroviral uh, treatment. And then the problem was to bring down the price of these drugs so that it could be accessible in developing countries. But the big difference is that, like in Africa, the local people nor their governments have the money to pay for this treatment, even if it's now far cheaper than before. We, we came down from about 12,000 U.S. dollars to 200, 300 dollars per person per year. So there is an enormous uh, important element here of what, let's say, the political mobilization, the commitment, and continuing funding from high-income countries such as the U.S. and Canada. Well, that brings us to a little bit more of what you've written about in your book, and that concerns your focus on infectious viruses. And I wonder what that motivation arises from. Well, when I was in last year in medical school, I asked for some career counseling for my professors. And the verdict was unanimous minus one, and there was no future in infectious diseases. This was in 74. You know, we've got antibiotics, we've got um, vaccines, and, uh, you know, it's done. This, this is just before the first couple of cases of HIV. Uh, yes, that was five years or six years before HIV, was two years before Ebola. And in the meantime, there have been so many other new uh, viruses and, and, and pathogens that have emerged. You were only, I think, 27 years old when you were in a laboratory in Antwerp as, I believe, a graduate student and made a pretty amazing discovery with the help of something that came from a Catholic nun in Africa. Tell us about this. Yeah, I was in training in, uh, for microbiology, and after two years after me- uh, graduating from medical school, uh, worked on a PhD in microbiology. And there we got a, a sample in a thermos uh, that uh, a passenger had brought in a commercial flight from Kinshasa in Zaire, blood samples from a, uh, a nun, a Catholic missionary, who had died from what was thought to be uh, yellow fever. And uh, we isolated uh, a new virus. That was the first uh, case of uh, what is now known as Ebola hemorrhagic fever. I went to uh, Zaire. It was in the middle of the tropical rainforest. And our first mission was to stop the epidemic, but then also to figure out how this virus is transmitted. We had no clue. And that was real detective work. It was very exciting. Uh, What is your own next goal? I guess personal and professional, since they seem to be so intertwined. Well, first of all, I think we need to be mindful that new viruses will emerge all the time. And so I want to make sure that the world is prepared for that. But secondly, the big epidemic of the moment is obesity. Uh, This is something where we can probably also learn from the response to AIDS, how to change people's behavior, how to uh, make sure that a health issue is at the top of the world's agenda where it should be. And it's kind of fun to prove your professors wrong. (laughs) <laughs> yes. The ones always. who said there's no future in infectious diseases. Right. 
Peter Piet. His book is called No Time to Lose, A Life in the Pursuit of Deadly Viruses. He spoke to us from London, where his work continues. Very nice to talk to you. Thank you. The answer to our geo-quiz now, it's the easternmost state of Malaysia called Sabah. Chris Hales is a conservationist with the Worldwide Fund for Nature, and he sent us this audio postcard from Sabah's Danum Valley Rainforest. The early mornings for any wildlife enthusiast are the prime time of the day. A lot of the wildlife is active at this point in time. You can hear the forest essentially getting started first thing in the morning. Many of the leaves of these trees are shaped and come to a point and the water gathers and it drips off those tips onto the forest floor making a knocking noise. Also what you're hearing is a lot of hissing noises. Many of them are cicadas. Uh, And I could also hear some rhinoceros hornbills. In the Danum Valley, there's actually a canopy walkway between several very tall forest trees. Um, So I'm sitting on this canopy walkway up in the canopy of the trees, listening to everything that's going on around me. This noise is coming from a Bornean gibbon. Gibbons are primates, a kind of a monkey, uh, with long arms. They literally swing through the tea troughs uh, with their long limbs, and they communicate between family groups using their voice. They're using these yelping and howling noises. I trekked off along a forest trail, And I was astonished to find that the Argus pheasant that I'd been listening to actually walked out onto the trail in front of me, and I stopped absolutely still. And I actually got very close to it, and I was holding out my recorder, but it didn't make any sounds for me at all. It just stood there, and we sort of looked at each other. And then I heard the sound of the hornbills coming in. I heard their wings, their wings make a whistling noise, and they landed in a tree behind me and started to call. When suddenly the Argus pheasant, which was now behind me, let go with his short call which just, its I've got to admit, it scared the living daylights out of me. I wasn't expecting this noise, but this was such an amazing experience. I'd got rhinoceros hornbills in a tree above my head, and I'd got an Argus pheasant standing behind me, and both were calling. And slowly but surely, the forest settled down again. We went back to the sounds of the cicadas and the insects, and that particular piece of excitement was over and done with. Um, A very interesting experience for me, so typical of what can happen by surprise in a rich environment like a tropical rainforest. And it behooves us all to take good care of them and to conserve them carefully. From the forests of Sabah in Malaysia, this is Chris Hales. Chris is a conservationist with the Worldwide Fund for Nature. You can see his photo of an Argus pheasant at theworld.org. This is PRI.
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. In case you missed it, the men's finals at Wimbledon wrapped up last night, and the hopes of an entire nation were dashed. If and only if Scotsman Andy Murray had won, it would have marked the first time in 76 years that a British citizen won the final at Wimbledon. But in yesterday's dramatic final, Murray fell in four sets to Roger Federer of Switzerland. After the match, Murray was overcome as he thanked his fans and his family. Everybody uh, always talks about the pressure of playing at Wimbledon, how, how tough it is, but um, the, it's not the, the people watching. They make it so much easier to play. The support has been, been incredible, so thank you. There were emotions of a different sort to be charitable. We'll call them mixed emotions at the British charity Oxfam. With Federer's win and Murray's loss, Oxfam comes into more than $150,000. That's because of a bet placed nearly a decade ago on Roger Federer winning seven or more Wimbledon titles, a feat that he achieved yesterday by beating Andy Murray. The man who made the bet died in 2009. He left his entire estate, including the bet at 66 to 1 odds, to Oxfam. Oxfam's Andrew Barton says the Murray-Federer match was difficult to watch because his loyalties were split. I kept finding myself sort of calling for Murray, particularly in that long game in the third set. And then my head is telling me, Andrew, remember, Oxfam gets the money if, if Federer wins. It definitely means that, that Oxfam can do some really important emergency work in West Africa where so many people are uh, suffering a real food crisis at the moment. So in this case, one group's loss is another's gain. The betting agent was quoted as saying they normally wouldn't be too happy about paying out a six-figure sum, but since it was going to Oxfam, quote, we were delighted that a sad story has had a very positive conclusion. And it seems the punter, as gamblers are known in the UK, did well by Oxfam even before yesterday's match. The man placed an earlier bet also at 66-1, to on Roger Federer. That wager was on the Swiss tennis star winning at least 14 Grand Slam titles before the year 2020. It paid out $26,000 for Oxfam last year. And finally today, Brazilian musician with a New Orleans flavor. That's how Ricardo Crespo describes his work. Reporter Bruce Wallace visited the Brazilian musician at his home in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans. Ricardo Crespo's music, like Crespo himself, comes from southern Brazil, from the pampas or high plains that stretch from there off into Argentina and Uruguay. And it comes out of the traditions of the people there who, for generations, have made their living among the livestock. In Texas here they call cowboys, in South Brazil they call gauchos or gaúchos in Portuguese. Gaucho music mixes Spanish, Italian and German sounds with Brazilian and African ones. Crespo says it's a music that grew up out in the elements. Many gauchos, they stay around the fire, and there, after working, they drink mate, and they think a lot of things. They exchange uh, experience, and they have a guitar, they have accordion. Picantes lembranças perdidas Encontro no bairro francês Retorno a cena da vida Procuro sonhar outra vez the elements are still important for Crespo's work. He points out that his home in Brazil is 30 degrees south of the equator, and that his adopted city of New Orleans is 30 degrees north of the equator. This keeps him in touch with the gaucho climate, he says. He's been in New Orleans for 13 years, and says one of his favorite moments in the city is the time right before dawn. This is the title track off of Crespo's new album, Madrugada in New Orleans. Madrugada is the Portuguese term for this time of day. 
I used to walk on the street between 4 and 6 a.m. Foggy, early morning, it's cold. And that is why I decided I wrote a song about the things that I, I was feeling walking. The presence of some kind of spirit, uh, pirates, ghosts, uh, angels, vampires. Deixei pra trás família Amigos do passado Parti e decidi mudar Vivi angustiado He started getting to know the New Orleans streets as soon as he arrived in 1999. He would play his music outside in the French Quarter. I like the street because the street, the street is very straight, I would say. If people like you, they stay, they exchange energy with you, and they pay for your work. If you don't like, they leave, don't disturb you. That is yes or no. Crespo was touring in Europe in August of 2005 when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. He learned that the water on his street was seven feet high. I felt three feelings together. First, I couldn't come back. We called this, I was exiled. Second, I lost everything. Uh, and the third, I was, I could do anything to help. Man, I cried for three days. And then, okay, I got He spent some time back home in Brazil thinking about what he'd lost and what to do next. Then it struck him. I had to come back to help rebuild New Orleans. Just to say thank you for what New Orleans did for me for the past six years. He found out about a Habitat for Humanity effort to build housing specifically for musicians. He put in a bunch of hours of labor in return for a new home with great mortgage terms in the city's upper ninth ward. There have been a few bumps in the road since moving back. He had to move out of his new house briefly while they replaced toxic drywall that had ended up in some of the homes. The school down the street from him, under construction for several years now, still hasn't reopened. And a lot of the musicians Crespo worked with before Katrina didn't come back after the storm. So, like a lot of other people in New Orleans, he had to be creative about rebuilding. He made a new band out of some up-and-comers a local music professor introduced him to. The situation that the New Orleans was facing at the moment, there was no musician available, made me to look for another option. And this was very important uh, to my music today because I play with young guys and they show me different kind of things in the music, you know, and then I learned with them. As he said during his New Orleans Jazz Fest set at the beginning of May, 13 years and several hurricanes weren't enough to wash him away. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace, New Orleans. Eu não sou daqui, sou de Campo Sul. Eu não sou daqui, sou de Campo Sul. Capivara com farofa, quatrocentos peru. Capivara com farofa, quatrocentos peru. Ricardo Crespo ends our program today. We're online at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Hope you join us again tomorrow.
minha mãe manega véia mora no oco do pau a minha mãe manega véia mora no oco do pau The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. PRI, Public Radio International.